0: It's um, the kind of story that we're built to do, and that we can almost uniquely do uh, through the lens of sports. Using it as almost like a Trojan horse to get inside and then ask him the human rights question.
1: That was David Scott, the DuPont Award-winning reporter from HBO's Real Sports. He's explaining what has made real sports so unique, a sports program that gets to the critical issues of our world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. My name is Abby Wright. I am the executive director of professional prizes here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm joined in the booth today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa Cohen. She's the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards and the prizes program writ large. Hello, Lisa.
2: Hi, Abby. So, our regular listeners, and we have many of them, they might be thinking, hey, that clip of David sounds pretty familiar, and that's because it is. For this month's episode, we wanted to revisit a conversation that we had with him back in 2018 because, for those of you who might not know, Real Sports recently announced this will be its final year, and we wanted to pay a little tribute to their program.
1: Yeah, such a great show. After 29 seasons and two DuPont Awards... We're really sad to see it go because we enjoyed watching it over all these years and because they did something kind of brilliant by using sports coverage as an entry point to unpack some deep and complicated topics, both here at home and around the world.
2: Yeah, it's such a beautifully produced broadcast. When we sat down with David, we got to talk to him about his many successes on the show, including how he nailed some pretty tough interviews There's one in the episode that he wanted DuPont for in 2018, a special one hour called Lords of the Rings. Uh, It tackled controversies surrounding the Olympic Games and the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC.
1: Yeah, I learned so much about international sports organizations from Real Sports and the incredible reporting these guys did. So David's final story actually just aired a few weeks ago. Uh, He followed a group of big wave surfers that sprang into action to help out during those devastating Maui wildfires.
2: Yes, and as you know, our former DuPont fellow Dan Litke produced it. Dan graduated from Columbia Journalism School in 2016, and he went straight to Real Sports. So it's pretty full circle.
1: Which is awesome. All right, so let's revisit our edited conversation with David Scott from 2018, which was soon after Real Sports won their silver baton. Lisa, you and I went on a little field trip and went down to the HBO headquarters for the interview. Thank you so much for talking to us today thank
0: you so much for coming we, we rarely get uh, such visits
1: so you won a, a DuPont
2: for the Lords of the Rings in 2018 the most recent and it was really a very wide sweeping series of reports around the globe about the transgressions
1: of the IOC and what's happening right and a tough interview that you had with I think his name was Hein Verbruggen yes. um, Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how did you even get him to agree to sit down with you? Yeah. He, was a, he had been a member of the Beijing Planning Committee? He
0: was a, he was a member of the, the, um, the IOC Executive Committee, and he was the ex-co-member in charge of the Olympic Games. And, uh, and so he was the, the point person, soup to nuts. He was the interface uh, with Beijing. Uh, and I have to say, like, people sit down, usually, when they sit down, it's out of hubris. It's because they're so tone deaf to the consequences of, of, their, of their work. Um, and, you know, I, I guess his, in his point of view, he was just so proud of it. Like, why wouldn't he want to talk about it? Um, he didn't expect us to, to go, you know, to go where we went. You must have seen the reports that suggest hundreds of thousands of people forcibly removed, many without compensation, some taken to prison or labor camps for complaining about the demolition of their homes.
2: I don't know where the reports are from. I can only say what they promised us to do, and that is what we
0: checked, and that is what I know. Verbruggen is also unaware, he says, that as the Olympics approached, the regime cracked down on another area of human rights, freedom of the press issuing a list of 21 topics that would be banned for Chinese reporters to cover in the run-up to the games.
2: You aware of that? No. Why doesn't he expect you to go where you went? I mean, you now have a track record.
0: It happens so rarely now. And, you know, in fairness, he's not watching real sports. In my experience, you know, you'd be surprised how few people do the Google thing just to check on the off chance that, you know, yeah, you and I would, you know, it would be our first instinct. But but I really think he uh, he was genuinely proud of his association. Um, he couldn't answer any of those questions because he hadn't thought about, he wasn't aware of of most of them. You know, the tainted milk scandal or Fang Zheng, the double amputee who was kept in under house arrest. or he, he just, you know, like, doesn't even get as part of the efficiency of working in those environments, like so, you know, all those problems are stopped before they get onto your radar. So he he had a lot, of, you know, he had a lot of deniability. What I don't understand is is why none of them realize they're going to run out of road at some point. They, they're not going to be able to 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 maintain the lie uh, about the Olympic Charter. The more of this they they do, I, I'm amazed by the the world of the sport's governing body, the lords of sport, as, as we like to call them now, and how simultaneously powerful and tone-deaf um, they continue to be.
2: Can you talk us a little bit through the process yeah. of being out in the middle of like nowhere?
0: Well, this was a fascinating example um, because it is um, you know, being a journalist in China, a foreign journalist in China, means that you have uh, you have minders every day uh, from CCTV or or some other agency, and they're on you. You know, 24/7. That's their job. Is they are supposed to be you know watching you around the clock. We had basically designed a a production that had an above board component and a parallel underground component. We had separate crews, separate personnel. Um, oh. so that you know so that the, the the two would would never would never meet and that we would have a chance of flying under the radar because while the Chinese surveillance system is vast it is not all seeing and knowing and if you're nimble and small enough um, you can fly under the radar for a short period of time
2: so the under the radar team did they have a, a minder as well
0: no no no
2: and what were they doing
0: so by day we would uh, we would go and we would do the dog and pony shows um, and some of it is revealing. For example, you know, the plaza where the birds nest and the, and, you know, the water cube uh, are built was actually the site of demolished homes. And so it's interesting to, to walk those grounds with people, you know, with the, the minders, and, and ask them you know, what was here before. Um, so you know, we tried to like, turn the dog and pony shows to, to our advantage. But our real business happened after they dropped us off at the hotel in the evening. And we kind of acted like uh, lazy Americans that you know, that uh, you know we're sports guys. We just like we just you know, just gonna go and and, and have some drinks and relax. Um, and in fact, that's when we would we would mount our underground operation, and we would literally go to the basement and get into a van that was, you know, uh, being orchestrated by, by people from the Chinese political underground. And they would take us to the back room of a restaurant in some inconspicuous Beijing alley where a noted member of the, of the Chinese political opposition would, uh, would be waiting for us, having, having conducted her own mission to, to, to get to us undetected, um, literally getting on subway cars just before the doors close and all that stuff. In one of those cases, we took a train out to Western China to Henan province to to meet the family of of a baby that died uh, because of the milk contamination. But hundreds of miles away in rural China, we heard a very different story. There we met the Li family, who welcomed twin baby girls just before the 2008 Olympics. One of the twins was breastfed. I didn't have enough milk at the time, so the other one was fed with the milk powder. Mm-hmm. And when was the first time you mm. realized something was wrong? One day, the grandma suddenly realized the baby hadn't pee for a day. I was worried, so I fed her with more milk powder, hoping that she would pee soon, but she didn't. Lee had no way to know That much of the nation's milk powder had been contaminated, that her baby and hundreds of thousands of others in China were developing agonizing and life threatening kidney stones. Chinese journalists had learned about the contamination and were preparing to report it, but were silenced by the government to avoid sullying the perfect Olympics. So we um, spent our time in China, you know, um, with this, this sort of parallel productions. and made it just like sort of through the eye of the needle. Um, I don't think you can like carry that out for too long, but for short periods of time, you know, we've, we figured out, you know, how to thread the needle. It's MMA fight night in Grozny, the capital of Chechnya a Muslim republic in the vast Russian federation, a kind of country within a country. The Colosseum is packed with men and boys, gathered for a night of flag-waving and cage-fighting that has become Chechnya's national pastime.
1: Just want to hear a little bit about your time in Grozny. I know you guys were down there interviewing the head of Chechnya, which is amazing. How did you find the city of Grozny? Was it your first time there? It's
0: interesting. So we we made two trips to to Grozny, and it was not a place that the corporation had any experience. Um, so we went through a long vetting process um, with uh, with Time Warner security and um, and the State Department that didn't think we should go and 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 that doesn't go there and and um uh, you know we talked to lots of reporters and uh, and learned that Grozny itself is actually a safe city a pacified city safe if not free and you know but really i mean the main risk is running afoul of your of your hosts and in that regard it it, it is an intimidating place and you you have to really measure every step and every word very carefully
2: what were you doing there tell us a little bit about the story
0: yeah one of the ideas that uh, that real sports is really kind of innovated over a long period of time and that, and that we're really in love with is using sports as a lens to look at conflict zones. So we look for places to sort of where we can engage in sports but open a window onto the politics and culture of, uh, of a place that's been racked by conflict and, uh, and in some ways bring that place into perspective, into focus for, yes, even the sports audience. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, we had in, uh, in Chechnya um, the specter of this warlord dictator who is fanatical about sports and masterful in his use of it to rally and recruit support internally, to project power externally. And we found that what he was doing was sort of new and different. Lots of dictators use sports to aggrandize themselves and their governments. He's actually turned this professional MMA fight club into an a, a branch of the dictatorship that actually funnels talent and personnel to the security services.
1: So, what is MMA? I mean, I don't know. I kind of mm. yeah. know what it is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but
0: yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, you know, 250 years of war in Chechnya means that every man and boy is expected to be ready for war at any time, and so they have this font. Of fighter talent, and now they have a lucrative international sport into which they can funnel this talent. This is MMA. This is mixed martial arts, which is Uh, which essentially it's a simulated simulated death match. So within five years, at that point, um, this fight club had swollen to five or six thousand people, young men and boys in Chechnya, many of them dispossessed by all those years of war. Uh, and looking for something to be a part of. Kadyrov has built an empire of mixed martial arts in Chechnya, and in true dictator fashion, he now wants to take over the world of MMA. His strategy? To build great warriors inside the octagon, out of men who've grown up fighting outside of it. (laughs) And nowhere do men grow up fighting like they do in Chechnya a republic that's known little other than violence and war for hundreds of years. You know, the elite MMA fighter makes a lot of money. Um, Most of them make almost nothing, just enough to keep them in the sport. It's a really, you know, brief and brutal life uh, for an MMA fighter. But if you represent Ramzan Kadyrov, you will want for nothing in in an environment of previously endless deprivation. And that is just like, uh, you know, that is a deal that that no one, no Chechen can resist. And so that's why, you know, men and boys are flocking to his club, just to be part of it.
2: It's such a fascinating Venn diagram between military, military and sports and the militarization of sport. If ever there was a sport, Right. Right. That it applied to MMA.
0: And and so you know we we thought you know what what a great way to sort of you know introduce the audience to the North Caucasus and and their importance as a as a as a region geopolitically Um, and and if we could only like actually get to the man himself it would be an amazing thing and um, and then you know a few months into our our project. Novaya Gazeta published the first stories about the gay purge. So we have this huge news story um, that was coinciding with our designs.
2: The gay purge. Yeah. What, tell us what that is. Yeah. Uh,
0: there are some very strong conservative currents in, uh, in, in Chechnya and Islam, and where those currents meet the old world of the Caucasus. Um, you will find enormous hostility to, uh, to gay life, to the idea of it. It is a great mark of shame uh, for, for most Chechenians, and the government has for a long time quietly and now publicly endorsed um, a purge of, of gay men from the Chechen population. And they mean it literally, and uh, they prefer that families do the killing rather than the government. And so what the purge looked like in practice was a uh, a kidnapping, uh, torture, they would, uh, they would find other suspects in the cell phone records of uh, their victims, and they would beat these men with an inch of their lives, put them in burlap saps and deliver them back to their families with the message to finish the job. They seem to back off um, after uh, international uh, criticism, but the, the, the message is quite clear. It's an affront to the culture to the religion, to the family, to the clan, It cannot stand. You know, it's just like, again, the kind of story that we're, we're, we're built to do and that we can almost uniquely do uh, through the lens of sports. In this case, using it as almost like a Trojan horse to get inside and then ask him the human rights questions. I wanted to ask you about the alleged Roundup abduction and and torture of of gay men in the Republic. Um, What, Mr. President, do you want to to say about that? (laughs) Kadyrov says that since there are no gay people in Chechnya, they can't purge what doesn't exist. Instead, he says the stories are being made up by human rights organizations looking for money and non-Chechens in Moscow looking for asylum in the West.
1: watching you do that, I was amazed. I was wondering what was going through your mind as you're asking that kind of question to that kind of person, because who knows what his response is gonna be, right? right, right. How well, do you prepare for that? Well,
0: we had, um, in the, the first trip, we waited nine days for him to say yes. We covered the MMA tournament that he had sponsored at the time, which gave us like a really good look at what it looks like when he fills his stadium and juices everyone up on, on Chechen nationalism. So we waited for nine days. Our visas ran out. We didn't want to be in the position of overstaying our visas, you know, in in the Russian Federation. And so we we left with our, you know, quite forlorn and defeated. And uh, and then we came back and somehow convinced our bosses to let us go try again. And at about you know about two o'clock in the morning, we finally sat down in the you know state house on the. On the palace grounds, and it was surreal. I couldn't almost believe it was happening.
1: So, who, how did the translation work? Lisa and I were talking about yeah. this. So, yeah. you're asking questions in English. Who's translating your questions? And are you hearing in real time the unbelievably macho, intimidating things that he's responding, or are you just pushing through your questions? <laughs>
0: right, right. Well, um, uh, we go into the interview and thinking that we have 30 minutes, because he says, um, you know, 30 minutes, I have to go make prayer. Um, so, it sounded like a hard out. Right. Um, and then uh, because it's a translated interview 30 becomes 15 so I, I'm now I'm, 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 really, I'm really like how are we gonna get to how are we gonna get you know down my list
2: and you're saving in 15 certain minutes questions. and and Something, you know yeah, it's gotta be yeah.
0: sequenced and I'm trying to you know find a way to kind of you know soften him up if not warm him up so that he will engage in the in the, in the real questions he's speaking mostly in Russian Um, But we we did have to have a Chechen speaker there, and it's very, very hard to find a Chechen speaker who does not have complicated ties to the Chechen Republic. Um, And and so I didn't know exactly what the conversation was, but I could get the vibe (laughs) pretty well. When the question comes about the purge, he's like, okay, now we know what this is. And ironically, he just got fully engaged blew off making prayer and this is what he wanted to talk about he wanted to talk about the is you know the acrimony with the west and he wanted to talk about uh... the problem with uh... with human rights activists and uh... and the myth of the gay chechen because there, there aren't
2: any gays because there aren't any, there aren't any yeah.
0: which was which was his denial except then he went on to say that but if there but if there were or are their families should kill them essentially endorsed the practice of honor killing, which had been also reported by Novaya Gazeta as, uh, as, as part of this purge.
1: And in that moment, I mean, even just being in Grozny seems pretty dangerous, but being inside the house of the most powerful man in that republic, I mean, did who you... Who kills people. Who kills people. Did you feel... How, how do you navigate yeah, that? Yeah,
0: it's, um, you know, at, at this point, we were, we we're all just so thrilled to have a shot at it because it didn't look like we were going to get one. Um, and, uh, and we're hopped up on adrenaline. And I'm being very careful not to be disrespectful. Um, uh, you know, we had no intention of insulting him or his religion or, you know, his, his family. Right, but from um, his
2: point of view, I mean, he may be interpreting what you're saying any way he wants to. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and, and, and who knows what to put past these people, right. you know. There was a moment of truth after the interview where the handler the gatekeeper was furious that we dared to ask these questions he had walked off we couldn't tell if he walked off in disgust or anger or contempt or if he was just done um, but the gatekeeper was was scary it took 45 minutes to calm him down because now he feels exposed you know he's right. the one that brought us into the you know into the, the you know, through the palace gates um, and uh, and I think that conversation was critical because what you have to worry about isn't so much that the big leader is going to decide off with your head, it's that some knucklehead right. in the vast entourage who's looking for a way to ingratiate himself or he thinks he knows what the big leader wants, is is you know is going to do something stupid, and um, and so we, you know we we calmed the gatekeeper down, um, we went literally across the street back to the. Rosney Star Hotel.
2: You're wor- are you worried about your your footage? Your
0: we were. We we had um, you know we we made multiple copies. Um, we used cameras that had multiple ports, and uh, and then we had an external recording device, just to hedge our you know ability to 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 save one copy. Um, and, um, and we decided we were going to you know, go back to the hotel and stay up the rest of the night and go straight to the airport and lo and behold we, we got out of there um, and then in hindsight you know it occurred to us that um, I think he was very happy with the whole thing
1: from his point of view he looked you know like a strongman extraordinaire yes which is probably and he's a great surrogate for Vladimir Putin and it's you know it served his agenda on several levels too
0: in fact even when the Kremlin said that he was taken out of context he corrected them and said oh no no I said it and I meant it (laughs) so I think every you know it's all very calculated with him the people who've written him off as a buffoon are wrong Um, you know it doesn't mean that he's not crazy but he is not stupid and, um, and, and and what he has done now uh, in establishing himself as Putin's liaison to the Sunni Arab world is, is actually the most, I think, you know, the, the most dangerous thing that he's, uh, he's accomplished. Western governments have begun to speak out against Kadyrov's actions. Last month, German Chancellor Angela Merkel publicly confronted Vladimir Putin. But the criticism from the West has only made Kadyrov more belligerent, especially towards the U.S.
1: So, David, tell us how you got your start in this wonderful business of journalism. And I, I understand you started at ABC now, or we knew you at ABC. I did. I
0: did start at ABC. Um, uh, actually, my, the first part of my career was in New York City government. Uh, I spent eight years in uh, the borough president's office in Manhattan, the Human Rights Commission, the Board of Education, and I transitioned to to journalism from there and um, got a foot in the door at ABC and was fortunate enough to work my way to the Brian Ross investigative unit in 1998. And um, I spent several years learning the discipline of investigative producing. And that's where I learned to do the hostile interview at the feet of Brian Ross at the feet of Brian Ross and and Rhonda Schwartz and Vic Walter his you know Dave Rummel his his veteran producers um uh, they taught me everything I know in truth I I think there's still in the public mood a desire for you know accountability accountability and and that often means you know confrontation in a in an appropriate way in a respectful way uh, and yet, you know, interview-driven formats are evaporating. Um, most of the news magazines have either gone by the wayside or turned into something else, you know. And, you know, we have all these new media forms, but we haven't really found one that, uh, that does what the, the old-school news magazine, you know, still does well, which is, you know, sit across from someone and look them in the eye um, and turn TV into a lie detector. <laughs> um,
2: Is there a little list of tips or primer that you would give to someone who's interested in in doing that kind of interview, like things to watch for and the way that your subject is reacting or when to turn the interview or how to ask the tough question in a respectful way? Those would be really useful pieces. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, It is, I would say, a matter of practice. Um, it is a discipline. I think um, you know, the first thing I would say is like, you have to discipline yourself to take the emotion out of it because uh, that's the great risk, that you lose control of yourself and, and it's easy to do under those circumstances and once you're on that slippery slope, I, I think your own credibility is at risk. Um, you got to have a really you know, good plan. Like We always plan you know, and role play and so we know where we want to turn the conversation and so the first part is, is set up or soften up and then there's the moment of truth and you know, sometimes the subject decides but when we can control it um, we know exactly where we want that to happen
2: you and do role playing you actually have you know your producer oh yeah. play the subject? Oh yeah, I'll sit down
0: with Josh Fine or or Jordan Chronic or or Joe Persky, and uh, and he'll play the subject, and I'll play me, and, and and we will, you know, talk through how this could go. It's hard to do in a case like Kadyrov, because frankly, no one can, <laughs> no one can get into his, his head. Um, but um, but we have, uh, but we always have, like you know, we always have a plan. We always know that we may have to throw it out at some point, um, um, and we and we almost always go through at least one role play, often more. Nine days in Grozny, we had endless role plays. <laughs> so preparation and and, uh, and, and strategy. Um, and
2: It's like if he says this, then I can say this, but if he says this, I can say this. Right, right, exactly, exactly.
1: You were a producer and then you became a correspondent on camera. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, uh,
0: I was a career producer. I'd come here as a producer at Real Sports and they were they were looking to mix up the talent pool um, and when they invited you me here
2: did they, was that part of it um, you know if i get an opportunity i'd like to go on it no
0: now. no i came actually i came i was, I was producing her for two years and then i left and shortly after i left they they called me in to, to do an audition i kind of did it on a lark um, and uh, and i remember my my uh, one of my colleagues tim walker he played the role of the head of the international bodybuilders foundation and i was like taking him on on steroids. Um, and, uh, and I you know, immodestly say I, I crushed him. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that's how that's how it started. And, and it's been, uh, it's been an amazing, like late career miracle for me, um, to add like a whole nother dimension to my work. And I regard myself as now like one of the luckiest people in the whole business.
2: Can you talk a little bit about what the dis- the difference is between producing and being yeah. a correspondent? Because I don't think people don't really know. <laughs>
0: right, right. Um, well, um, to be, um, just to start with the 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 superficial. You've probably heard this. Um, an old ABC News producer t- uh, told me once. The relationship between the correspondent and the producer is like that of the the dog and the fire hydrant. But they both think they're the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think what a lot of people don't know is that there is, um, there is in, the, in the partnership between producer and correspondent, this almost um, this creative and control tension. And it's not always a bad thing, um, but it is always a thing. What producers do is, is, is manage the whole process, and so the correspondent, you know, has to submit to that. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, we, um, depending on the conditions, uh, things can get really, really difficult and ugly. Uh, Jordan Chronic and I had our first fight in four years on on uh, at Everest base camp, which was strictly uh, uh, the result of of, uh, of altitude sickness and. And uh, and and just you know the, the crushing pressure of, uh, of of being in such an extreme environment, um, um, but it is you know on the other hand it is it is the reason that like nothing we do is is individual here, um, and there's a there's a kind of built-in checks and balance to that. When you get it right, when you can work with people constructively in that kind of partnership, um, even under you know extreme conditions. Um, it makes things better. Although it uh, um, there's, all this, there's, there's blood, sweat, and tears on, on the floor every single time.
2: <laughs> and so what would you say distinguishes the two sets of, of jobs uh, responsibilities? Jobs, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, um, the producer has to manage the production, all aspects of it, you know, often with like razor-thin margins of time. You know, if we're in the field for more than a week or two, that's a lot for, for our format to bear financially and, and, and just time-wise. That's why the producer's telling everybody what to do because he, you know, he or she's got the job of managing the whole thing and making sure it comes out the other, it comes out the other end. It's really, really, really hard. I mean, all these jobs are hard, but, but that under stressful circumstances is really hard. The correspondent has to perform. Um, You know, has to psychically prepare to be in that moment. I'm still early in my career as a correspondent, so I can tell you that like it takes preparation. Like maybe some people do it naturally, but when I'm thinking about being in that moment, um, it's kind of all I can think about. Um, I can't be managing, you know, the logistics at that moment. Even just, you know, kind of digesting the editorial is difficult, you know, when you're in that process, like getting into the, the moment. You
2: mean
0: the interview? The interview, and and in particular the you know the interview of interviews, you know the one in the piece that the you know the whole thing is going to turn on, um, and we're going to get one shot at it, and it'd be very easy for you know it to, to not happen the way we need it to happen, and then in our in our shop, we both work all ends of the editorial, because there again that's where we like sort of you know we can we can check our own and each other's biases and. And we can make sure that we are, you know, that we are doing our due diligence in terms of standards. Um, you need the collaboration for that. And by the way, I, I, I didn't want this to end without saying, I feel like we are all proving the profession's worth right now um, with the disruption that's gone on. I'm not talking about the technology. That's the least of it. Now I'm talking about like turning the whole thing on its head, where everybody's publishing. You know all kinds of stuff. And every, what
2: are facts? Every, and what is yeah? And what reporting. are facts? And
0: and and what's happening in the White House and and the march of the autocrats all over the world? Um, I feel like we're all so desperately defending our profession, um, and we need some renaissance of standards. And you know, it's one thing that I, I you know I appreciate about you know where I get to work um, is like people get that you know even the people that don't work on the show. Peter Nelson, who runs HBO Sports, um, you know, really gets that. And, and Bryant, God bless him, you know, he's kept this thing going for 23 years now. You know, that's like a dynasty in television terms is really like his heft and his, and his vision that, um, that this thing will not be distracted by what's fashionable you know, that we will stick to what we do without music, without fancy graphics. Um, It's really, it's the reporting and the storytelling and that's who we are. That's who we're gonna be as long as his name's on the thing. Um, So, you know, I'm lucky to be in a place like this but there are a lot of people out there, you know, who are just roiling and so I just, I, I just hope for some like great renaissance in the core standards that, you know, that That drive this whole thing.
2: Actually, the things that the DuPont celebrates and honors.
1: We were thrilled to have Brian up at the ceremony in January as well. It was great to see Brian Gumpel up at Columbia. Um, final bits of advice for our journalism students?
0: Well, I think you know, it's um, it's gonna be frustrating. It's gonna be painful. you know, you're gonna have to suffer for your art. Um, but you know, p- please remember that it is easier than it's ever been in the history of, human civilization to get your work in in print on the air on the web Um, you know it is so far more accessible now than than at any other time before I'm grateful for that great democratization of media and and, uh, and you guys don't really have any excuses you know you can start building a body of your own work right now and you can get it published you know right now Um, And that is just an amazing opportunity that, frankly, no other generation before you has had. So have at it.
1: (laughs) What a great look back, and those are some really inspiring words for our students. Thank you again to David Scott. It was such a pleasure to speak with him all those many years ago, and we are super excited to see what he does next.
2: He's one talented and passionate journalist. I won't be surprised to see him at a future DuPont ceremony collecting his next silver baton, wherever he ends up.
1: The final episode of Real Sports is set to air on December 19th, so don't miss it. If you haven't seen it before, this last one is a tribute to the series that recaps all their greatest hits, and there were a lot of them.
2: I'll definitely be watching. And just a quick note to our listeners, we're gearing up for a very busy DuPont ceremony season, and we'll be taking a break to prepare for the January 25th awards ceremony.
1: This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced and engineered by recent journalism school grad, Alyssa Castles.
2: Until next
1: time.